All right, if I could have everybody take their seats. We have a few announcements before we get started into our service today. Uh, Elaine Rohr, uh, our sister here in Christ at this church, uh, passed on and went to heaven July 4th. So we will be having a memorial service for her on July 23rd at 10 o'clock here at Home Church. Uh, Reno Aces Faith Night is August 19th, and it will feature worship with our very own Home Church worship band. Tickets are $9 each and will be on sale uh, in the next couple weeks. There is a prayer jar in our missions area along with some paper for you to write any prayer requests on. If you do that, our church staff will uh, be in prayer for every request. You can also write the requests on the welcome cards and put them in the back tithe box at the back of the sanctuary. We are going to have a men's breakfast July 30th at 8 a.m. at the Black Bear Diner in Sparks. If you would like more information, you can contact Ron Sherwood. At this time, we are going to enter into our time of giving and corporate worship. We uh, are so thankful and honored by everybody who has continued to give faithfully uh, the tithes and offerings. We have three ways that you can give. You can give it uh, in person in the, back of the, in the box at the back of the sanctuary. You can give online by going to our website or you can do it uh, by mail. If you do it uh, in person or by mail, please make sure that you write the uh, ministry that you would like it to go to. And if I could have everybody uh, bow their heads with me as we enter into a time of prayer. Father God, we are so blessed and humbled to be able to meet with each other here in your name. We ask that you would bless the offering and bless the worship uh, that we will be singing in that you take those offerings the best that we can give you and we multiply them. And we ask that you be with our church body as we have lost another sister. Recognizing that through you, the end that we see is never really the end. We thank you for the gift of everlasting life that you have given us through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 19.
I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Ephesians 1, 18. Father, we do pray that you will open our eyes to see Jesus. We pray that you would open our ears to hear Jesus today as Matt and Amanda share Jesus with us. May we hear what the Holy Spirit says through this couple. And Lord, we just rejoice that in home church we have people to share the word. Thank and praise you, Lord, for all who are here. Thank you, Lord, for all of the Christians around the world who are rejoicing today because of God our Savior. Be with our family up at Tahoe, Lord, and we pray that they too would hear Jesus. And Lord, for those who have lost loved ones and are suffering the grief today, we pray that you would be with them, touch them as only you can, and help them as they navigate through their grief. Lord, we want to see Jesus in everything that we do, everything we say, and everything we hear. So once again, we ask you to open our ears that we might hear Jesus as Matt and Amanda are filled with the Holy Spirit sharing Jesus with us. We love you, Lord. Hear our prayer. It's in Jesus' name we come. Amen.
Good morning, church. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. Um, I just want to thank the choir so much. Those songs were beautiful. <laughs> it's such a wonderful way to start this. It just puts me right where my mind should be and, and ready to hear what God would have to say and reminding us why we're here and why we do what we do. So uh, for those of you who may not know us, we're Matt and Amanda Freeze. We are the leaders of the youth group. So if you don't know us, that's who we are. And yay! <laughs> we're very blessed to be able to speak to you today. We're very grateful for the opportunity. The title of our sermon is Just Love. And the first scripture that we're going to turn to this morning is Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7. So if you want to turn there with me in your Bible or your phone. So <clears throat> for a little bit of context behind this scripture, Moses at this time is asking to see God. He wants to see God's glory. And so God says, no human being can handle seeing my glory. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of a rock, and I will pass by you. I will cover you with my hand. So, verses 5 through 7. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. What we find, what Matt and I find with this scripture is it's a moment in the Bible where God describes himself. No one's trying to define him. He passes by and says, this is who I am. He declares his name. And so this scripture is worth looking at. What we find here is that God can appear to have two characteristics, two sides of him, right? We have this forgiving, loving God, and then we have this God that says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. What we can do, unfortunately, and this is both inside and outside of the Christian faith, whether you profess Christianity or not, we see God in one of these two ways. We either view God as this immovable judge Someone who's waiting there watching you to mess up, who has this law book and who's ready to bring it down if you step out in error, right? Or we view God as this adoring parent, the God of love. His love is so great that he could never, ever see his child doing something wrong. And unfortunately, this characterizes God incompletely. We incorrectly simplify these two traits, and this can be very confusing. 
even within the church or outside of the church, these two traits seem to be in conflict with each other, and I don't think we have a really good viewpoint of them. And so that's our goal today. Our goal is to view both God's justice and God's love and see how those interact, see how those play off each other. But what I want to remind everyone is that as we enter into this, this sermon, God is never just one or the other. He is never just just. He's never just love. He's constantly both. And so I'm going to hand it over to Matt to talk about justice. So the first part that we are going to tackle of that scripture is the second portion, where he says that he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And this is our truest sign that God is a God of justice. Now, justice is something that you cannot live without. And I need you to understand that. That through everything that we have and do as people, you cannot bear or live a life and a world without justice. This is because we are made in the image of God, who is a just God. We have justice put permanently into our souls. And you can see this because it is not a cultural revolution. It is not something that we see here in America or the Western culture and we don't see anywhere else. Every culture in the world has invented a court system in order to dispense justice, to determine right and wrong and deal with that accordingly. Consequently, no other species in the world does that. It is only humans and it is all humans that have this innate need for justice. And we are going to turn to Romans. We are going to chapter 12, verse 19. Romans is a letter written by Paul to the Church of Rome. <coughs> the titles aren't very clever back then. And uh, this is coming from a section in my Bible. The paragraph is called Christian Ethics, which would mean the way that a Christian ought to live. We're looking at chapter 12, verse 19. And Paul writes, Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath, because it is written, Vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So two things that stick out here. One is that when we think of justice and when our need for justice comes through us, the first response is often vengeance. If we are hurt, we want to see whatever hurt us hurt in equal measure. Um, Years, and by years, I mean millennia ago, old Roman law was that if a person was killed by a tree, if a tree falls on them, their family got to chop it up <laughs> and dispose of it as they saw fit. There is a sense of revengeful justice that is just in our bodies. And Paul brings this up. 
And he says, not only is vengeance your default mode, but it's a default mode that you must ignore because you have to leave room for God to complete it. Now, I want to give a little backstory on the church in Rome at the time because they were going through a very major struggle of persecution. The term Roman candle was originated because they would burn Christians alive and use them to light their garden parties. Being a Christian was automatically an imprisonable offense. Paul was killed shortly after this letter because he was blamed for lighting Rome on fire. Keep in mind, he was in prison, which probably makes the arson a little harder to complete. So when he says vengeance belongs to God, do not avenge yourselves. He is not talking about people writing mean things about you on Twitter. He is talking about true, heartbreaking persecution. And in the midst of that struggle, he is able to say, vengeance belongs to God, and God will repay him. This is one of the key points that we have to get to today. We have this need for justice in our body. We feel that it should be paid back, often with some form of vengeance. But how often do we trust God to handle that justice for us? I want you to take a minute here and think, is there anything in your life that you are unwilling to forgive somebody for? Do you have someone or something that keeps you up at night, either because of your own guilt or because you have been wronged? And in that, do you trust God enough to give that over to him and to say, I will leave room for you to enact your justice. I will stop trying to control it. Because if you have a symptom, if you have a situation that you can't control, that you can't enact justice on, your need for justice will burn you alive emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Emotionally is easy. It gives you anxiety. Physically comes right along with that. It can keep you up at night. It can put in a cortisol drip into your brain that just starts wrecking havoc on your body. But this last Thursday, we did a lesson with the youth on forgiveness. And one of the things that was brought up was that when you feel true guilt about something, when you feel that kind of crushing guilt of your own sin, or when you feel very hurt by somebody else, it's harder to come to God. And so what that means is that if you have something like this in your life, it is driving a wedge between you and your creator and savior. Are you willing to restore that relationship by falling back into the trust of God that he will enact justice that will succeed? Along with justice that we can't live without it, we have a little bit of an irony of it because we cannot bear the weight of it. We cannot stand under justice. 
we all fall short even of our own moral ideals, let alone those of a holy God. And so we're going to flip now to Revelation. That is the last book in your Bible, so if you see maps, you've gone too far. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and uh, this is a uh, prophecy given to the Apostle John that he wrote down that is about the coming justice of God, that he will have his judgment, that he will reenact true justice. And right after we see that creation has been redeemed with a new heaven and a new earth, we read Revelation chapter 21, verses 3 and 4. <coughs> 21, verse 3. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people's. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. Because the previous things have passed away. I want you to take a moment on this verse too. It should give you hope. That is the point of this verse is to know that at the end of everything, justice will be redeemed. Every tear will be wiped away. But I want to pull you a little bit away from hope for one second. Because we always put this verse in terms of us being the first person who understands it. Or not the first person, but in our first person mindset. That when God wipes away tears, he is wiping away ours. But I want you to realize that he is wiping away tears that are there because of you as well. You and I have all sinned. We have put into the world things that have caused other people's grief. And so when God enacts his justice, and in that he wipes away every tear, you will be swept up in that as well. And that is a tough pill to swallow. There's a few things when we get under the own weight of our justice that we can do. The first is we can justify it, which is how most of us drive. When somebody cuts us off, there is no grace. But when we accidentally cut somebody off, you know, lay off the horn a little bit. <laughs> it was an accident. I would like some grace. How many times have we all recognized that lying is wrong for humanity for all time? But in this one situation, for this one lie, for me, it is excusable. We have a tendency to pull ourselves out of our own moral code because we can't bear the weight of it. And this justification that we have is dangerous because it will create a callousness in your heart. The minute you start justifying your sin, it becomes easier to continue to do that sin. So the other option, 
is to bring it to God. As we read in Romans, we have to approach God not just with the justice that we deserve, but the justice that should be given to us. Do you have enough faith and trust in God and his mercy to go to him with both what has hurt you and what you have done wrong and let him sort it out? If we go back a little bit in Revelation, and this is a verse that will not be on the screen. Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. John writes, After this I heard something like the sound, like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. Know that at the end of everything, when God enacts his final judgment, when he seals in the justice that you have been so craving and you cannot live under, at the end of all of that, we will all shout that his justice, that his judgment is right and true. We will all bow the knee to that and recognize that what he has done has truly redeemed the earth. So since we have a need for justice, and since we cannot live under justice, it will crush us, we have to recognize and learn not only God's justice, but we have to learn, understand, and accept God's love. There we go. So I'm going to talk about God's love. You're all probably thinking she got the easy one. <laughs> this is the easy topic. So love within Christianity is the most quickly and easily understood concept. Out of anything that we support and teach, love is like, that's us. We got this. Our mainstay verse is John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It is a pillar and a central focus of our faith. Humanity as a whole, as Matt was saying, all of us have this innate feeling that justice has to happen. We all have this innate feeling that love has to happen. It is very much a uniting factor in humanity. We look for we desire, we work for love. We write songs about it and movies about it and we talk about it and we celebrate it. Inside of Christianity and outside of Christianity, love seems to be the pinnacle of humanity, of what we can do, of what we can be. I'm gonna read a quote out of a song actually. And forgive my American pronunciation. It is my favorite book. It's Les Miserables. And this is from the musical. And this character is singing about love at this point. And the song says, there was a time when love was blind and the world was a song. And that song was exciting. There was a time 
and it all went wrong. So where did it all go wrong for us? A phrase, which this is not my topic today, but it's a philosophical statement that is passed around very quickly in our culture is love is love. What this presupposes is that we all have the same idea of what love is. The phrase love and love is love is not a definition of love. It says nothing. It says love is love. It assumes we all have the same idea of what that is. So why, if we innately know love, we feel it, we know it when we see it, we can point it out, why don't we have it? And when I think of love, I think of these kind of sacred connections we have in our culture. The, the first one being of marriage, of two people coming together because of love. And we go to weddings and celebrate that they are bound together by what we say is love. So if that's true, and these two people who both know that what love is, love is love, and they come together, why is there domestic abuse? And why is there divorce? I think of another close and sacred connection between children and parents. Mother and child love is something that's wonderful and beautiful and something that we all see and understand, seemingly. But why is there child abuse? Why does that exist at all if we all know what the definition of love is? If we all agree in our songs, in our music, in our culture, that love is what we all need, and we all understand that, why is there violence and wars? So that's the question that I have when I come to this idea of talking about love today. The verse we're gonna turn to is 1 John chapter four, and we're gonna read seven and eight. So 1 John chapter four, verses seven and eight. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love is again, it reminds me, it harkens back to that verse in Exodus when God says, this is who I am. This is another verse that people quote and know very well, is God is love. It's one of the most definitive statements in the Bible, so much so that people outside of our faith will call us out on our behavior. If we act unlovingly, they'll say, hey, isn't God love? Is this what you're supposed to be doing? Why, if we all agree, is my question. Why, if we all agree, what is, what is going on with the outcome? Why are we having these outcomes? So while we desire love, I, my only conclusion is we do not understand it. If we're looking at this verse that God is love, the natural conclusion is you only know love as much as you love God, or know God. You only know love as much as you know God. Something that we need to stop doing, a big don't, 
is this idea that we understand love to understand God. What this is, is centering everything around ourselves and saying, this is how I show love, and this is how I understand love. Therefore, this is what God is like. It's completely backwards. What we need to do is understand God to understand what love is. We need to flip this narrative. So our goal, again, if we look at the big picture, is we want to think about how you view justice and how you view love. Because if you do not look at God to tell you what love is, you will look at yourself to tell you what love is. Evangelizing in America is a little tough right now. Because if you go to someone and say, Jesus loves you, they'll say, I love me too. I'm great. I'm just full of self-love. This is the philosophy of our age on love. And it's actually been this way for a lot longer than we think. It is not a development in the last 10 to 20 years. I thought of a quote from The Wizard of Oz, which is a movie from a lot, <laughs> a lot longer than 10 or 20 years ago. And at the end of the movie, at the end of their quest, they go to see the wizard, and they're receiving their gifts from him. And the tin man wanted a heart. And so the wizard of Oz gives him this token that is to represent a heart. And he says, a heart is not judged by how much you love, but by how much you are loved by others. And my, this makes me think of my mom every time I see it, because very, very wise woman, even when we were little kids, when we would watch this movie, she would say, that's actually completely opposite. Didn't forget that for 20 plus years. <laughs> so please talk to your children about these concepts that are slid into, our, into what we, is just commonplace. This idea of how much your heart being judged by how much you are loved is rampant. I am, that we hear things like, I am depressed, I am anxious, I feel unfulfilled, and it's because people aren't loving me enough. This idea that I demand love because I am a human being and I deserve it. This self-centeredness regarding love seeps into our relationships. I will love you if you meet my criteria. If you check off the things on my list, then you are worthy of my love. Or, I will love you without any regards to justice, ignoring justice. I don't care what you've done wrong to others or to yourself. My love's going to cover that and ignore it, because my love is so great. Per our verse, God is love, is this what God is like? Does God ignore justice because of love? Is it loving to ignore justice? The story of God and of love is found in Genesis chapter 1. And we're not going to turn there, I'll paraphrase. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is so important because God within the Trinity was complete in love without the creation of us. God did not create us to fill some void in his life. He was complete without us. 
God did not create us because he was deficient in love, because he needed the billions of likes and loves like a TikTok, right? It's a shallow, shallow, self, selfish form of love. God created us to love us because he is love. When I look at the creation story, I just see this burst of love, of a God who, because he is love, this is the outcome of it, this beautiful outcome. Even in the beginning, after he creates humans, he says, it says that God blessed them. So if we look at 1 John again, still chapter 4, we're going to continue reading verses 9 through 12. Please do not stop at the God is love and making that definitive forever. <laughs> chapter, or verse 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is made complete in us. We are human beings, and to quote, paraphrase, I should say, R.C. Sproul, we are creatures of the dirt. To the dust we will return. We are creatures of the dirt that God breathed life into out of love. It says it in here that we did not love him first. We do not have his love because we are worthy. We are worthy because he loves us. And that is never flipped. God created us to receive his love and then to give his love, his love, right? Key thing, his love. It says in here, even in verse 12, that this is the evidence for God. If someone's looking for evidence, it says no one in verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love each other, that should be the evidence for God. That's how great his love should be in our life. How are we to receive his love and give his love? That's the question. We do not ignore justice. Because it says in verse 10, love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice. It says in here that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing because they look at it and they're like, how is that love? It's bizarre. Or they look at that and go, how is that justice? I don't understand, because they don't see the love. We have Christ. We have a son on a cross who's the most unique, beautiful, completely selfless act of love. And it is who God is, and it's our perfect example. We're going to return for a second. <clears throat> to Exodus 34, 5 through 7, now that we have worked through God's justice and his love a little bit. I'm going to reread this. 
chapter 34, verses 5, says, The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. One of the keys to this passage is actually very early on that God has proclaimed his name, the Lord. This Hebrew term is Yahweh, which means I am. It is how he introduced himself to Moses. And the reason for that is because he is not inconsistent. You and I really are moral people, sometimes. We make the right choice for justice, occasionally. We forgive people when it suits us. God doesn't have those qualifiers at the end of himself. When it says, I am, he says, I am from the beginning to the end. He is a compassionate and gracious God, always. He is slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth for all time. He is maintaining a faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin everywhere. But he will not let the guilty go unpunished, ever. And this is where we get to attention in the Bible. I've heard it referred to as the riddle of the Old Testament. If God will not let the guilty go unpunished, who is he forgiving? You don't forgive the innocent. So we have this conundrum, this bit of tension between God's justice and his love that went unanswered through millennia. And then, Jesus. Jesus Christ is the combination of his love and his justice. Jesus Christ came in love, and he lived a life that you and I could never live. One that demanded zero judgment of justice. Then he willingly went to a cross and took on the guilt that you and I have all earned. This comes back to where I was talking about with justice. We have a need for justice, and God provides that. He will provide it with judgment at the end of history. We cannot bear the weight of justice. It will crush us. But Jesus Christ in the ultimate act of love and sacrifice will stand over us so that that judgment hits him 
Isaiah says that God was pleased to crush him in our iniquities. And it doesn't mean pleased as in happy, but it means pleased as in satisfied. Jesus Christ has satisfied every ounce of justice and judgment that you and I deserve. There is nothing you can do to outpace it. I've heard from people through my youth group and through people on the street that they feel like they have done something that can't be forgiven. That is ridiculous. If you think for one second that you in your earthly, sinful, come-from-the-dirt self can accomplish something that the God of the universe can't help, you need to refigure out where you stand in this equation because it is not as the ultimate power source. It is as a creature that cannot live in a way pleasing to God, but as a creature who was created with so much love that God would sacrifice his only son, he would come down and bear that punishment himself so that you may live forever. We have to trust Jesus. And that is the tough part for us sometimes, right? We have to put Christ at the center of our being as our Lord and follow him with no condition. But if you do that, if you will take everything that deserves justice in your life, whether it be something that you need because somebody hurt you or something that you deserve because you hurt them, you can carry that to the foot of the cross. Stand under Jesus. Look unto him. And let his love shield you so that you are not crushed by the justice that we all deserve. We're about to enter a time of prayer before we close today. <coughs> and I cannot leave this pulpit without begging you to reevaluate where you are in your walk with Christ. If you have turned from him even the slightest bit to turn back, if you don't know him to figure out who this Jesus is, come talk to somebody. Watch debates. Something. But we all know that you can't live without love. And somehow we don't understand it. We know that we can't live without justice. But we can't bear it. But Jesus Christ answers both of those questions that have plagued humanity since we plucked a fruit from a tree. So if you don't know Christ, or if you don't know him well enough, this is a time to sit in prayer and contemplation or come talk to Amanda and I. Figure out that next step. Let's bow our heads. Father, we are so thankful that the very essence of who you are in justice and love fulfills our two greatest needs as humanity.
And we are so thankful that you would come and rescue us and redeem us from ourselves so that we may learn what love is and we may experience justice without being crushed ourselves. We ask that you use this congregation here today, the people in person and the people online, to spread your message, to give us the courage, conviction, vocabulary needed, to share your love and your justice around a world that really needs it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, church. Have a blessed week.